This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with renowned British writer Robert McFarlane. Robert joined me for a special conversation about his writing on language, landscape, people and place. We delve into his latest book, Underland, A Deep Time Journey. We also draw on some of Robert's previous works, including Mountains of the Mind, The Old Ways, and Landmarks. Robert is a Fellow of Emmanuel College at Cambridge University. And you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 R FM in Melbourne, and uh, I'm really absolutely delighted to be joined by Robert McFarlane, who is uh, based over in Britain and is a writer He is, in fact, the author of a number of books that cover subject matter, particularly regarding nature, place and people. Those books, which you may be familiar with, are Mountains of the Mind, The Wild Places, The Old Ways, Landmarks and The Lost Words, which uh, Robert co-wrote with Jackie Morris. And he's also been involved in a number of artistic projects in film and music, which we Hopefully we'll touch on as well. And Robert does teach for a living and um, is also a fellow of Emmanuel College at Cambridge University. I welcome Robert now and thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks, Amy. Hello, everyone. (laughs) I was so delighted when I saw your latest book, Underland, A Deep Time Journey, which is really very extensive and just beautiful in terms of the illustration on the front cover as well. It seems to really get the mood of the book so beautifully. In terms of Underland, this is also very much a landscape and people book, Mm. as are your previous books like The Old Ways and Landmarks. And I was interested in the way that your writing has evolved and the topics that you've tackled and how you've been influenced and why you've chosen certain subject matter. Hmm. And I wanted to bring us back to some of your earlier works to kind of set the scene in terms of your formative years as a writer and a thinker about landscape and nature and people and place. And one of those really fascinating books, I mean, they're all fascinating, but one of those is The Old Ways and you do talk about landscape in some really fascinating terminology and and references. And one of them that I'd like to ask about first up, and maybe it's a little bit too deep for a first question, but I'm (laughs) going to jump straight in. You write, we are adept if occasionally embarrassed at saying what we make of places, but we are far less good at saying what places make of us. For some time now, it has seemed to me that the two questions we should ask of any strong landscape are these. Firstly, what do I know when I am in this place that I can know nowhere else? And then vainly, what does this place know of me that I cannot know of myself? And to me, it just encapsulated a lot of the writing and the thinking that I've read of yours Hmm. and how, although landscape seems to be some kind of abstract concept, it's very deeply personal. So I wanted, I guess, to spring from that point and that prompt and ask you about landscape and how it has brought you to personal reflection and obviously, you know, shaped your life. 
Wow. Well, th- thank you. Thank you for the introduction and, and for that question. I, I was slightly hoping for, you know, what's your favorite color or something. <laughs> you given, you could given also me... answer that. <laughs> it's yellow uh, at the moment. Um, uh, yeah, but you've given me a tough one. I, I mean, I ask those questions early in the old ways because they're, they fascinate me, not because in a sense I, I can answer them. What, what, what I can say is I, I've always been interested in this idea that we can we can think of thought itself as site specific and as as motion sensitive. Put that a different way, we're very at ease with thinking that certain landscapes can have certain species in them that are uh, specific to those habitats, as it were, or s- certain flowers, or certain minerals, certain kinds of rock, or even certain kinds of weather. It's a little more unusual to think that they might have certain kinds of thought in them, and I came to be very struck by that notion of, of thought as almost a, a, a species that has a habitat. And I think it's true, if I can be a little more concrete about that, there are thoughts I have had in while climbing mountains that I could not have had at sea level. There are thoughts that I have had while walking 20 to 30 miles a day that were born of the tiredness in my body and the, and the landscapes through which I was moving at that time. And the first line of the old ways, the book you you quote from, is this book could not have been written by sitting still. So in that sense, I join a long line of Walker writers who believe that 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 thought is is made by walking rather than something that you discover at the end of a walk that you go to. And I do love that idea. And it's been very it's been very motivating for me as a as a writer. And it's 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 kept me moving <laughs> though, mm. though the last six months. Uh, for me, as for all of us, has been one where confinement has been has been the situation for thought. Mm. And one of the really interesting connections that you draw in terms of thought and movement is highlighting things like etymology, particularly of the verb to learn, and its meaning to acquire knowledge. But you trace it back um, in terms of its etymology and saying that moving backwards in language, the Old English, I'm guessing, I don't Leonian? Yep, that sounds pretty good. We don't quite know how they, how they sounded back then. But. To get knowledge to be cultivated. And then from that, the path leads further back to proto-Germanic, mm. to the word lisnosion, which has a base sentence of to follow or to find a track. And so that to me was so fascinating and provoking so many ideas and thoughts in my mind about how, you know, movement and walking can be so intensely connected to learning and knowledge. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I'm I'm a a lexophile as it were. I I just love language and I I love the fact that language has, you know, roots and paths as well, roots in both senses of, of the word, as it were. And following to learn this everyday verb that we don't, think of as having a past really which is one we use all the time but you follow it all the way back into the proto-indo-european and you find this profound connection between moving on foot along a path in a landscape and learning so knowledge and and walking are are rooted deep together that they are one path really at the beginning and you see this in across language we talk about prints as it were uh well a footprint is what you leave when you walk and a uh, and increasingly, a, a, a print um, is what you leave when you write as as well. And um, there are there are many examples of how the language we use 
to describe walking and the language we use to describe thinking align. And it's not always the case, I should say. And I do say in, in the old ways that sometimes when you've, you know, you've walked for 20 miles or 25 miles and you're just sick, you can't think of anything other than the, than the nice cold <laughs> drink at the end of the day or, or, or stopping. And, and many kinds of walking are antithetical to thought. Um, but, but there are so many ways in which walking is a more than functional activity in human history. It's, it, I, I call it, you know, our oldest sensing technology and it's still used as a, as a vital sensing technology. Ecologists carry out what's called the foot transect. They, they get on the ground and they walk in a straight line and they see what they can see in that straight line. Um, archeologists and landscape architects have this wonderful phrase, ground truthing which again is stuff that just can't be done really by remote sensing technologies, by satellites or by the aerial view. You have to be on foot, on the ground. And we've been that way for as long as we've been human. Mm. And you do make it really clear that this idea isn't a new one. In fact, it's very ancient really mm -hmm. in terms of the evolution of human beings. And you do reference Australia's First Nations people and the concept of dream time and, mm. and walking as well. And also bring in some, you know, fascinating and sometimes moody European <laughs> philosophers like Kierkegaard um, and Nietzsche. Yes. And, uh, and it was really interesting to get their take on it as well. Nietzsche being very absolute, as you say, only those thoughts which come from walking have any value. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So laying it down as Nietzsche yeah. does. Certainly does. But it did make me think about philosophically, there's something that is quite transcendent about movement within nature. Hmm. And that does make me think about your first book, Mountains of the Mind and the Sublime, and you know the kind of transcendent experiences one can have in a very, as you say, strong landscape, mm. a place that is really wild, like, for example, Isle of Skye. Mm. You can really, I mean, I had, I've had transformative moments in those landscapes, um, and it just, there's something, as you say, that it just couldn't have happened anywhere else, and it probably won't be the same experience anywhere else there's something really special and I know that you visited your grandparents in Scotland when you were growing up and when I was reading about the fact that you said Underland is the first book with no Scotland in it yep. um, it, <laughs> it did make me think about that and and the connection with places that are so wild like Scotland and how they might shape a person so I, I also wanted yeah. to ask I guess before we delve into what's under the ground um, <laughs> I did want to greedily ask about mountains <laughs> yeah well I, they, they <laughs> one of my still favorite have my, subjects yeah mine too so you've been to the isle of sky then you've... yeah oh it wow. was honestly my most the best place i've been to be honest wow um, did yeah, you get up and, on the coolin ridge then oh i didn't because it was winter Oof, right the um the isle of sky rescue volunteers warned me at the pub in Carbost not to go. Right. <laughs> they were like, please don't go because we don't, don't want to rescue yeah, you. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I'll be there as it happens next week, um, all oh, being really? well. Yeah, I'm going to get a couple of three or four days in the mountains before the academic year really starts. Uh, that'd be the first time I've seen the big hills since before the pandemic and I think we'll pro we'll probably head to the Kulin. Um, yeah, oh. the Kulin in winter is, is, is about as serious as 
as mountaineering gets here. So I think you took yeah. you took a wise decision, but um, well, yeah. When but, we arrived, it was raining, hailing, okay. snowing, like alternating, <laughs> and like really windy, yes. and um, and we couldn't even find our way. But we were actually right next to the Coolins, and it was literally outside the window. So it was a, an amazing place to explore, even when it was freezing cold. But I have a lot of respect for their sheep now. Oh, yes. They seem yeah. very tough. Yeah, 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 they are tough. Um, yeah, the, the, the Gabra and the basalt of the Kulin, um, for those who don't know it, is, is the closest thing we have to a fully alpine ridge, um, you know, absolute shark tooth, jagged ridge, um, the full traverse of which is a is a, a notoriously difficult challenge involving you know lots of mountaineering and abseiling in about twenty four hours, so um, I won't be doing that when I'm up there. But I, w- I hope to get up on mm-hmm. up on the ridge there. Um, yeah, I mean the simplest way to describe the twenty years of writing I've done is is a, is a slow movement from over about two and a half thousand pages from and and nine books from the tops of mountains to the to the bottoms to the inside of the earth from the from from the upper sunlit peaks to the underland uh the mountains have still got my heart you know I'd, I'd much rather climb a hill than than go down a cave which is not to say that i don't find the darkness fascinating but yeah i grew up um i grew up climbing i still climb um i'm somewhat risk averse i went through the kind of young man's phase of of of, of undertaking uh, climbing expeditions both in terms of rock climbing and then big big mountaineering expeditions in places like the Tian Shan and uh, and and the Alps, which were you know exceeded my capacity as a mountaineer. So I I learned and I survived. Uh, fortunately, not 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 everyone does, and and passed through that phase pretty quickly. But the but the, the power and the pull remained. And Man's of the Mind was an attempt to which yeah I guess I wrote in two thousand one two thousand and two as a young man in my early to mid twenties was an attempt to understand why why I was drawn up to mountains in a way that could put me at risk and, and my loved ones at, in the way of harm too in terms of loss, but also why as a culture the, the quote-unquote Western imagination had fallen in love with mountains really very recently, like 300 years ago. Mm. Um, and so I, I tracked those two fascinations through history and through my my own life. And you're right, it, it, it in my life it leads... It leads back to Scotland and all the time I've spent up there in those mountains growing up and, and, and then as an adult. Yeah. And have you ever had a chance to climb the Coolins? Yes. Yes. I've been on the Coolins, um, not not for a long time now, not for about 15 years, but I was there four or five times, never done the, the full traverse of the ridge. Um, there's a mm. notorious feature called the TD Gap, uh, which is a, a big, big abseil. Uh, down and then a, a, a rock climb out and there's also <laughs> one of the best named features in british mountains which is the the inaccessible pinnacle of skur jarrog did they tell you about that one when you were when no. you were there so th- it it's it's known as the in pin to, to climbers uh, and i've attempted it twice and 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 backed off it twice oh wow it's not at all a, di- a difficult technical climb but the wind was big on both occasions and and the rock was wet and bah. anyway i should have done it but um it looks like a shark's fin of rock of basalt um yeah. uh, uh sticking straight out of the side of a mountain and the the notorious route description from the early 1900s from one of the early ascensionists says there is a fall to oblivion and death on the right hand side and a fall even further and more dangerous on the left <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So, yeah, you want the right conditions for that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's hard to know whether there are many right conditions in Sky. 
You're right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I do follow some people who live there and um, they have been recently just in awe of how perfect the weather has been in terms of just pure sunshine and actually maybe one time with no wind. That's about to change. So I'll, 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 I'll get the proper sky sky. Yeah, exactly. So maybe we can move into what is really the other side, the flip side of mountains. Hmm. Um, And it was such a really interesting idea to me, this connection that you draw between deep time and the Hmm. underland and also the kind of claustrophobia that comes to mind straight away when you're thinking about dark places that Hmm. are deep underground and also that we don't really think about what's under us very rarely, to be honest. Like, I honestly don't think that I've thought that much about it, bar for fungi, um, which is only a recent thing that I truly started to understand. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask, how did you get to that point in your literary story where you've tackled these fascinating subjects about linguistics and and also about mountains Mm. and walking and paths? But how did you get to underland and under our feet? Yeah, I mean, it is a very aversive space. I think that's the first thing to say. We don't we don't look down or 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 go low, partly because our associations are to do with fear, to do with death, to do with confinement, to do with imprisonment, um, exploitative labour. Uh, whereas the mountains, we 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 celebrate and they draw us up, in part because we we believe they will be beautiful and exalting places. Um, what I discover discovered through years of exploring the underland is is that it too is has an astonishing tradition of association with 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 wonder with revelation with knowledge with with seeing in darkness but the answer as to why i went down there in the first place is um is that in 2010 i mentioned this briefly in the book but it was an astonishing year i don't know if people will remember back through the, the various calamities but in the course of eight months there was the haitian earthquake there was the Deepwater Horizon oil drilling blowout in the Gulf of Mexico. There was the Icelandic volcano Eyjafjallajökull, which exploded and grounded all all flights across North America and Europe. And then the summer of that same year, there was the collapse of the of the mine in Chile, which trapped those thirty three miners, who then astonishingly all survived in the darkness and were brought out one by one to the surface in this extraordinary kind of rebirth myth. And so for eight months, the, the underworld was absolutely declaring itself on, on the surface, both in terms of human practices of, of, of mining and drilling, um, deep water and, and chili, and the unbiddable, um, unknowable forces of, of the earth itself that, that rose up in the form of the volcano and the earthquake. And I just couldn't get it out of my mind that we, we think so little about what's beneath us, partly because we suppress the knowledge of of extractive industries and all that they they bring, and partly because there is a sublime power uh, to the underworld, and so this this disjunction between the power of what lies beneath us and our, our our ignorance with it just I just couldn't get away from it. So when I finished the old ways, that was what I turned to and and began work on, and it it turned into a very long long project, and I wrote the last pages of the first draft as those those Thai footballers famously went in under the mountain in um in Thailand with their coach and then were trapped by the by the rainburst that brought the rising floodwaters. And again the entire world was absolutely focused on this this modern myth in the making. 
Yeah, that's so true. And and an Australian element to it. I think Australia got a little bit excited about our critical role. Yes. So you sent you sent a great deal of of of, of specialist aid, right? Yeah. And, and specialists, cave divers, and indeed, I think one of them was an anaesthetist, and they the two men who were from Australia actually won Australians of the Year, the the big award here for that feat. And uh, yeah, we were also fascinated. That also, I think, sparked our imagination in the sense of who are these people who go cave diving? Yes. Who goes to these places? Why would you, right? (laughs) But but when uh, that question, why would you, is um, is is really the one at at the heart of Undland because there are many reasons not to go down, and yet we still do. And not only do we now, for you know reasons as esoteric and obsessional as cave diving, but we have done really since before we've been anatomically modern humans. And that I think that's what, what when I realized that there was an, a story to, to be told here that was far, far older than the one I thought I was, I was going to tell in terms of human involvement. We now, we have a dating on the, on the red handprints on the walls of a limestone cave in Western Spain that, that, that go back to around 64,000 years ago. They're, they're disputed, but they're very recent and there's a great deal of interest in them. And that puts them about 20,000 years before modern humans reached Western Spain. So that is to say they are, they would be Neanderthal cave art. Mm. Um, and we were Homo nodeliensis, a you know, very early hominin, seems to have been burying its dead in, in a deep, deep cave in South Africa that's been brilliantly explored by a predominantly female team of, of paleo archaeologists and anthropologists so you know, we, we we go back and back in our relationship with the with the underworld and, and what we think is is new to us now is is very often just a repetition with variation of something that's been happening for tens of thousands of years that's so so true and it was interesting to me also you've just been mentioning the human element and how we've really been so connected with the under underland from the very beginning and it was really interesting to read about particularly in part one the fascinating areas in the underland in Britain Hmm. where you're looking at the underland but there's so much of us of humans Hmm. within these stories it's not a kind of pristine natural environment untouched by humans of course I'm sure parts of it are but there's so much of a human story in this and it did remind me of a comment you gave in this book of saying this is one of the most human books you've written yes Yes, that was a, that was a great surprise. I, when I began, I thought it was going to be all about oil and um, rock and ice and deep time, by which I mean the geological age of the Earth, the kind of eons and the epochs and the millennia that that crush our human time frames so 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 hugely. But but actually, I, I realised more and more that it was it was a human, it was a very very old human story as well. And it began from that that apparent paradox: Why have we gone into the darkness to see things for as long as we've been human? And trying to work that out turned, turned out to take me <laughs> seven or eight years. So yes, I mean, in um, early in the book, I, there's a chapter called burial, and and I talk about burial practices, including some of these extraordinary, um, touching um, excavations that that to me speak across thousands of years of uh, barrow round. Um, burial site um, excavated in what's now Denmark revealed famously, beautifully, tenderly a 
the body, the bones of a woman um, and her tiny baby son, who it seems both of them probably died in, in childbirth. And the baby's bones were placed on the wing of a swan, the single wing of a swan. And, uh, and, and the mother's arm was around the baby as well. And this double cradling, this double arm, human and more than human, placed to remember this tiny life that had scarcely lived. This, you know, this I'm feeling shivers down the spine, even as I tell it again, though I've thought about it so many times. 10,000 years ago in in the southwest of Britain, in, in near the Mendips limestone landscape, Mesolithic people who lived incredibly hard lives of movement and deprivation, nevertheless began and opened and maintained for over a century the first cemetery known in in Britain. They wanted to honour their dead children and um, and adults by placing them in in a in a safe underground space. And there, the idea that we we place in the underworld not just what we what we hate our our sewage our nuclear waste what we want to get rid of but also what we love most that was so touching yeah when i was reading that too i i was reflecting on that and thinking what they could have been thinking at the time yes. in terms of establishing a cemetery like that and you write that there's no comparable cemetery known to be established in britain for another 4000 years yeah, well, it's a it's a gap in the record. We don't know whether there was or there wasn't. I mean, one of the, one of the reasons this one survives is that it was a, it was a very good cemetery, as it were, but also mm. that the geology, um, a, a sort of steep sided limestone scarp um, with loose boulders, sealed sealed the space. And then this amazing thing happened. Anyone who's been in limestone, wet limestone, will know that that it it, it forms this solution of calcium carbonate that that cavers call dripstone or flowstone that then sort of runs down like a varnish. And when the first people by accident discovered this cemetery in the um, in the 18th century, they, they, they let the first light fall on these bodies for 10,000 years or so. And what they discovered was an eerie charnel house, uh, the bones of, of, of children and, and adults, which were glimmering in, in the light because they, they'd been sort of sealed by this flowstone that had run down and, and over them and had acted a bit like the varnish on a painting come to preserve them. Mm. I did actually look up what a flowstone was to kind of get a really good picture of it <laughs> and it was beautiful. Well, it takes many forms. It sort of depends how it runs. It, it, the best way to imagine flowstone or dripstone is is like candle wax. Mm. Sort of transparent candle wax. Wax as it comes straight off the wick before it's had a chance to set and harden, though sometimes it turns white too. And um yeah, it can form these absurd, extraordinary, very baroque formations um in in the underworld people yeah that's that's the basis of stalactites and and stalagmites but it it forms great curtains and ruches and waterfalls and all sorts of other things and 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 it preserves things as well including cave art as well as buried bodies yes that was a really interesting fact later on in the book that uh, it sounds like it was just so fantastic that that was the case now that we're so lucky to have these beautiful works of art in caves mm. I did want to pick up on limestone, which you say um, is usually formed of the compressed bodies of marine organisms. Mm. I mean, that is also pretty staggering in terms <laughs> of what materials make up the underland in various continents, in various areas or regions in the world. 
and limestone being such a fascinating form or, or material and, as you say, has that wetness to it as well. Yes, that, well, I'm so glad you share my <laughs> slightly obscure passion for limestone. But, I mean, I live on I live on chalk here in South South Cambridge, where I live. Just just we're just on the chalk, and the chalk then runs for hundreds of miles to the English Channel, uh, and and becomes part of the the same deposition that gives the famous um, White Cliffs of, of of Dover and so forth. Chalk is also compressed marine bodies, but yeah, I, I mean limestone. I mean the whole of the deep time history of the earth in, in many ways is a necropolis. It's a, a gathering of the dead and a compressing of, of, of dead life. Um, but limestone particularly. So in effect, it forms, as people will know, just by um, trillions and trillions of, of, of tiny marine organisms, uh, foraminiferae and coccolithophores, which just die. And then they have a little bit of calcium in their exoskeleton. They rock down to the bottom of the ocean and form increasingly deep sort of layers of silt as it were dead silt dead body silt and that that builds up and becomes its own pressure force and and then over over deep time it gets compressed into uh well chalk and um limestone and, and even marble depending on heat and pressure so yeah we when you're moving through limestone you're moving through an astonishing life force that has been lithified mm. It was so evocative when you were writing about your experience with Sean in that really confined space um, <laughs> and you were saying that suddenly from either side of the gorge fall two avalanches of stone, waves of boulders and rock fragments crashing down upon us but somehow frozen in mid-sweep, cantilevered out over our heads. I see that the fragments are all glued together by calcite mm. And you said that your nerves started to tingle as you were passing through these hanging waves of stone. <laughs> and it, it kind of brings a jolt to your body when you think something's moving, but it's not. And it's yeah. so, I wondered what that really feels like. You know, it, it was so beautifully described. I'm really, I'm really glad that made sense to you. It, was, it yeah. took me ages to try and work out how to, I wanted to do something with tense in language there because you've, you've evoked it really well for the listeners, but we were passing through this deep, limestone gorge and cut by a river way, way underground and then and then the, these it looked almost as though there were avalanches coming at us in real time as it were uh, of stone sort of white um, fragments of stone but then they, they weren't moving they were fused by calcite um so i i just couldn't time made no sense it, it these things had formed over tens of thousands of years but they felt as though um, they were they were crashing down on us in that in that very second. So there was a danger that wasn't a danger that was felt by the body, and so I had to make. I mean, language is good for this, right? You can play with tense. So, I, yeah, it, it it when you passed between them, it felt like you were passing it into a different time zone or through a time slip, and that happens a great deal underground. When I was in Paris in the in the catacomb labyrinth there, the the off limits catacomb labyrinth, I was down there for for three days or two and a half days uh, without seeing the sun. And there you would pass through you know, a medieval quarry passage uh, and then you'd find yourself in a, uh, a resistance bunker from, from the Second World War and then a, a sort of Wehrmacht a retreat um, space. And then you'd find yourself in a party room filled with contemporary Parisians drinking vodka and <laughs> dancing to the jams going underground. And one of them dressed like Indiana Jones. I mean, you know, 
that's another form of time slip that was that was happening all the time. All of that was it within a you know a mile or two of of tunnel of each other. Yes, that was a, a really fascinating part of the book, and also really fascinating was the advent of mushrooms growing down there. Yeah, well, mush. I mean, it sounds like you're a, you're 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 a fungus head as it as well, yes. or a shroom head um, in various ways, um, if I can call you that politely. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they grew. I mean, so these these were the quarry tunnels out of which Paris was was quarried from the Middle Ages onwards. So there's this invisible city underneath the south of Paris, this sort of negative volume memory of the of the upper city of light, into which, if you know the right people and have the right um, maps, you can drop and and spend spend time as as I did. But it, they've been repurposed for many uh, many intentions over the centuries. In the 18th century, they became catacombs they became ossuaries where the city could store its overspilling dead from the surface cemeteries and then yeah in the 20th century um 19th 20th century later 19th 20th centuries they became a good place to to grow mushrooms there were thousands of tons of mushrooms grown on on sort of horse manure rows down in the catacombs um and and yeah yeah tell, tell me about your your fungus uh, obsession or your fungus interest that you've been developing oh no it's happened since 2017 okay my first ever interview was actually with Peter Volobin. Ah, yes, right. Yeah, who was so lovely. And I know he was drawing on the work of a range of scientists in his book and kind of communicating mm-hmm. it to a more general audience. That got me thinking in terms of how it's so interconnected with trees, which I absolutely also adore. Yes. And and then I, I guess later have had the opportunity to speak with fungi experts and oh, it's amazing to think that it's its own kingdom, that it's not a plant and it's not an animal. Right. But it kind of has features of other kingdoms. I don't know. There's something so mysterious about the fact that it's both above ground and mm-hmm. under the ground. Mm-hmm. And there's just, we get this brief fleeting moments above ground where we can appreciate what's going on. But there's so much more that we can't see. And that's why I loved your chapter with um, Merlin Sheldrake. Yeah, who's who's got the most extraordinary book that's about to be published called Entangled Life: How Fungi Shape the World and Change Our Minds. Um, so that that's definitely going to be one for you and anyone out there who's who's interested in in mycology. And but yeah, it's I mean I say very early on in the book, you know, if you if you look up on a sunlit uh, sorry on a moonlit clear night, you can see you can see starlight that's travelled trillions of miles. But if you look down you can see as far as your toe <laughs> and, uh, and and the, the, the revelations around the wood wide web and mycorrhizal fungi and the way they connect individual trees into intercommunicating forests which Peter Volleben was one of the first people to to communicate to a very wide audience but was pioneered by Suzanne Simard and, and, and other forest ecologists and of course has been written about by indigenous cultures or spoken about by indigenous cultures for for thousands of years as a kind of self-evident truth mm. um is astonishing so yeah that trees trees connect and communicate and share resources with one another by means of a of an ancient 400 million year old mutualism with certain kinds of um, mycorrhizal fungi that together form this incredible complex gossamer network of mycelium in the soil that we walk on all the time whenever you're walking around trees or in the in, in in many parts of the world you'll be walking above the wood wide web and just that simple, I mean, so much about the underland right there, you know, mm. go down a centimetre below 
the sole of your foot and you're into a, the kingdom of the gray, uh, the world of, of, of fungi and their relationships with trees. Wow. <laughs> it blows my mind and yours. Yeah, exactly. And you made that comment in the book a number of times that you were kind of still processing it and how you first were introduced to the idea by your friend who mm. was dying of a terminal illness mm. and that that sparked your interest and wonder. And I wondered, are you still processing it? <laughs> yeah, well, we always, we always will be because we you know, we cannot know the kingdom of the grey, which is the, the phrase I use. I think I can't remember. It's China Mieville, I think, introduced me to it for, for, for the kingdom of fungi. It just, so little of it makes any sense to us. We're just the beginnings of, the, of, of, of a purchase upon its otherness. Um, I dream at one point in the book of being able to to speak in spores, to have a language that is adequate to the kingdom of the grey, to fungi and, and all that they do without mutating and, um, as it were, anthropomorphizing this this world. And the Wood Wide Web has proved such a powerful metaphor for, for connection. And I do see I do see the use of it. Mm. I mean during the during the pandemic, in a way we you know, through through the World Wide Web and through a kind of word wide web people began to create mutual structures of support and sharing in in communities around the world and and between nations and it was it was amazing to see but that's not quite what fungi are doing there <laughs> and nor are they you know ruthless neoliberal trading organisms that are trying to maximize their own good there's you know, we're always projecting onto the animal kingdom and, and and onto landscape and maybe maybe that's what i meant all the way back at the, the very first question you asked about how we're we're very bad at saying what places make of us. Mm. And one of the things that is um, so interesting that you've just brought up there around mutualism and you talk about this non-hierarchical network, mm. but you say that mutualism is a subset of symbiosis in which there exists between organisms a prolonged relationship that is interdependent and reciprocally beneficial. Mm. Although, as you show in the book, it's not always instantly reciprocal. There are so many different ways that fungi and trees interact and it's not all the same. And that was another thing that really blew my mind was that there wasn't really one predictable or there wasn't one rule of behaviour in the fungi world. Hmm. No, no. I mean, again, this is just the, the beginnings of, 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 of an understanding. I mean, the modern science... Is, around this the wood wide web is is really a scant quarter century old um so the early experiments that are, are being carried out now are still trying to determine how much carbon is traded via the wood wide web um how, how much signaling that's to say communication goes on between trees via the wood wide web and and, and plants as well i should say there's there's evidence that plants can, um, so for example, a plant may come under attack by a, a particular insect species. And there's evidence that a plant under attack will warn a plant further away from the attack, as it were, by means of the wood wide web, the fungal connection through the, through the root tips of the trees and into the, into, in, into the root tips of other trees and plants, that this attack is happening so that the, the other plant or tree can, can upscale its chemical defense against that particular attack i mean that that's amazing that that is as simard calls it trees talking to one another mm. and um we both should and shouldn't be surprised by that i mean anyone who's been in a, a, a broadleaf forest in a 
on a spring day. I mean, I, I can't think of a, of a place more alive with conversation <laughs> between between creatures and, and, and plants and, 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 the, and parts of the world. Yes, and it does remind me um, when you say, and I'm very much paraphrasing, that you can't really be solitary or alone in a forest. <laughs> Do you feel that? I never feel alone. It feels like I couldn't be more alive than when I'm in a forest. Wonderful. Yes. Does I, that feel the same for you? Yes, it does. I, 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 if I ever write a big book again, if, if the world ever makes it possible and, and I have the energy, it, it'll be called Heartwood and it'll be about people and trees and forests um, um, around the world. So, yeah, I, I, I do feel that very, very strongly. Um, I mean, they're just bubbling bubbling with life and, and bubbling with 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 communication as well there's there's some um uh one of those elaborate german verbs that means something like uh to 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 take pleasure in going for 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 a walk uh, a solitary walk in the forest but i that's that's even when i'm alone i'm i'm not alone as you as exactly as you say and there's wonderful you know wonderful anthropology around this the many the many eyes and the many voices of, of the forest and one of the most beautiful to me or touching moments when I was reading this book was when you were drawing links between trees and love and you wrote that when you were in the, it was, I guess, a city forest, mm. wasn't it? Yes, it is. Epping Forest, just a big, big, big uh, sort of a peri-urban forest on the, the boundary of London. It sounds truly amazing with, you know, 400, 500-year-old trees. Yes. And you were saying lying there among the trees, despite a learned wariness towards anthropomorphism, I find it hard not to imagine these arboreal relations in terms of tenderness, generosity, and even love. And you were talking about these trees that are kind of linked together in some ways and how they can kind of link up at the base and in different parts of the trees. Yes. And um, it was really beautiful when you were talking about the kissing branches that have hmm. pleached with one another the unseen connections forged by root and hyphae between seemingly distant trees. Mm. And the one thing that just got me like in the gut was you quoting Louis de Bernier, mm. who wrote about a human relationship mm. that endured into old age. Quote, we had roots that grew towards each other underground. Mm. And when all the pretty blossom had fallen from our branches, we found that we were one tree and not two. Mm. Isn't, that, isn't that wonderful? Wow. Yeah. yeah. And it's a version of Ovid's myth of Baucis and Philomel as well. Um, yeah, trees kiss, uh, they snog, um, they embrace, <laughs> they they grow into one another. Even the um, the technical term for for where trees branches grow grow into one another, so that the the cambiums uh, interconnect is is called inosculation, which means sort of in kissing, into kissing, mm. uh, in from the Latin uh, osculare, and. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm getting on a bit these days. Uh, uh, forty-four years, and I've been married for twenty of those, and um, I recognise that the way that that love works uh, underground as well as, uh, as well as openly and above ground. You know, you grow towards one another, and in ways that are often invisible to you, um, it takes time. And yeah, the pretty blossoms fall away, but um, if you're lucky and 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 deeply love love the person you're with for a long time. Then um, then these other structures are are there too, and they're 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 the long ones. They're the they're the civilizations. 
Mm. It made me think um, I actually have three trees growing and kissing. <laughs> to you. Very, very close together. Okay. Yeah, three very different species. Different species, all right. Which we didn't plant. There was only one planted in that spot and somehow three grew up in the same spot as um, yeah, semi-mature adult trees now. Uh, so, so there's just an ongoing snogathon in your in your garden. Yeah. What what, what are this? What what species are are getting it on there? Oh, I don't. Some of them we don't even know. Okay. We did um, put a protea tree, which is very tall now, in the backyard, and that's the one we deliberately put there. And then there are two others which I have am yet to identify, which are very visually distinct. Fantastic. And they're just so close together, and all their branches are intertwined, and their their roots at the base, their trunks are right beside each other in a clump it's just amazing well i don't know how endo and ectomycorrhizal fungi um work down in australia but um uh, i i wouldn't be at all surprised if they were they were busy webbing with one another through the through the <laughs> fungi underground too it was pretty special one of the other things that we're already talking about and which i wanted to ask about was this way that we introduce human concepts to nature in a way to try and understand hmm. things and 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 I guess relate to them in some way. At the end of that chapter or that section with Merlin, you were talking about how we really have very inadequate language to Mm. describe what's happening at the moment, particularly in the forest's underland, Mm. um, and that perhaps we need a new language altogether, one that doesn't automatically convert it to our own use values, you know, that uses that kind of capitalistic language where it's very much a transaction and or, by contrast, a socialist, Hmm. so-called socialist model. Hmm. Um, And I was really, I just thought it was funny that Merlin was saying, well, that's your job. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. you're the the poet, you're the the writer. Um, How does that feel when it is your job to, to, you know, and others' job to create this new language? Well, um, I guess in a sense, uh, well, a very, very loose sense, Underland is is an attempt to do that across 500 pages which yeah. is to say it, it it's experiments with language it's sometimes it's a sort of prose poetry other times it's or, or it aspires to that other times it's a, a much more expository prose but but uh, i mean i tried to if i can say this i tried to give underland its own underland in terms of language so i want mm. there are patterns that recur through the book and one of them is is to do with mutualism another is to do with that image of that the hand on the cave wall, the open hand raised in greeting and communication. There are various other motifs, and I wanted to allow them to um, to reach out to one another as a, for the reader as a kind of word wide web, a sort of partly buried structure that, when you read across the book as a whole, becomes partly visible to you if you are if you tune into it. And mm. that was just, I mean, that's just my small attempt, but. I mean, more interesting, I think, is uh, I write about Robin Wall Kimmerer, the um, brilliant American and uh, First Nations Potawatomi citizen member who is has, on the one hand, indigenous knowledge at her fingertips and indigenous language, and in the other is a trained botanist and plant scientist. And people will, your readers, I'm sure, will, many of them will know her, her, her great, great books, Gathering Moss and Braiding Sweetgrass, yes. which are about what happens when you unite these two forms of, of knowing, very different forms of knowing and knowledge and discipline, as it were. Incredible, incredible. And and she makes the point in Braiding Sweetgrass and elsewhere that Tawatomi language 
uh, is is brilliantly active in the way it ascribes life to more than human entities. And English, as it were, if we can call it that, isn't. It tends to subordinate things that aren't human to, to it. Um, and it also makes them uh, objects. It, it objectifies them. It deprives them of, of, of life. Whereas the grammar of animacy, as Robin calls it, in um, indigenous languages often recognizes at a grammatical level uh, the word for bay, uh, a bay of water, is, is a verb in Potawatomi. Uh, there's a beautiful word, pupawi, which means um, the force that drives mushrooms up through the leaf litter overnight, causing them to explode into being on the surface. And yeah, this is, this is wow. what, a, what a compressive acknowledgement of the, the life of the world beyond the human. Yeah, it really does bring to mind just how deficient we are in some ways um, in terms of how we're currently in our contemporary language talking about these things. And, mm. of course, in Landmarks, you know, you do also draw on the old languages of areas in Britain and how they had such a rich language to draw from that yeah. really was very highly specific. And it feels like that that specificity and that literariness mm. and how evocative language can be has gone missing. It doesn't feel the same. Or uh, Obviously, I wasn't there, but you know, <laughs> reading landmarks and getting an understanding of what the possibilities were with language, you know, in Scots Gaelic, for example, yeah. was just mind-blowing. Yeah, it, it is mind-blowing. Um, and and I know that you know, many, many decolonizing conversations are happening in Australia around these questions, you know, the extraordinary mm. overwritten uh, in the sense of being uh, kind of erased uh, indigenous languages that are just astonishingly alive and attentive to the landmarks in that sense, to, to aspects of place and weather and creaturely life. Um, yes, I, I wanted to do a, a sort of salvage archaeology project on, on languages for landscape in, in Britain and Ireland. So I spent several years gathering thousands of, 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 place words as I came to call them for aspects of weather and, and landscape and creatures and uh, changes in the environment and, and so forth. So, and, and I discovered this yeah dazzling word hoard to use um, Seamus Heaney's phrase from his translation of, of Beowulf, uh, around 33 languages and dialects and sub-dialects from around what we now call Britain and Ireland from, from Shetlandic, which is a sort of Scots sub-dialect down to Cornish, which um, is is an extraordinary sort of Britonic, Brythonic language in in origin, and wow, just so much richness. There's, I mean, the, the example I always give is this is this Gaelic term from the Outer Hebrides, Runic Muim, which literally translates as mackerel moor, and mackerels have these spotted, dappled, bruised flanks, as it were, of colour, and this phrase means the the shadows cast by clouds on moorland on a sunny windy day so just this this entire weather drama of of the the, the cloud bruises as they move across the moor in the outer hebrides driven the clouds driven by the wind and this gets transposed onto the flanks of the mackerel that are caught offshore there and then and then rebounds into the language itself as this incredible compressive phrase it's so interesting that when you think about these languages and, and the use of them, the current use of them, I know when I went to the Isle of Skye, 
people were still absolutely speaking Scots Gaelic to the point where some people were only speaking to us in that Hmm. um, at a hotel and we were like, oh, we didn't know we had to learn another language. (laughs) (laughs) And they were all on the road signs and it just was fascinating that there is certainly still linguistically a, a lot of that living on in different ways. But I wondered whether that was still the case with the landscape um, in terms of how, how people are describing the landscape around them. Is it yeah. is it confined to practicality or does it extend to, you know, beautiful descriptions of everyday beauty? Yeah, that's a really it's a really good question and it it, weigh, it wades as a question into the into a a really precarious situation for Gaelic. So we, on the whole, we wouldn't say Scots Gaelic. We'd just say Gaelic, and then Irish Gaelic would just be referred to as as Irish. Um, mm. So, so when I say Gaelic, I I mean the Gaelic that's spoken in uh, Scotland predominantly, or what we now call Scotland. Um, and you were, yeah, you were there in a heartland on on the Isle of Skye. Um, what's what's happening is that the number of speakers is increasing, but the number of, as it were first language speakers is is declining um that's just so so um people can learn gaelic at school there's a lot of to take up on duolingo and and places like that but people who speak it as their uh, fully native kind of either first language or or, or shared first and second languages if uh, whether they'd, they'd all be bilingual um that that is increasingly confined to the older generations on the on the islands particularly the Outer hebrides the inner hebrides and parts of the the north and west, and it it is a language in peril, and it's an utterly beautiful language. And the the many friends I have up there, those who who use it, use it fully poetically as well as pragmatically. They they absolutely relish its um uh its poetic dimensions. But I think uh, it's if you're learning it as a almost as a as a hobby language, mm. it's 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 harder to retain those those reverberations. Yeah, it certainly requires to keep using it yes. um, and also with others who can understand and yes. speak it fluently. Yes. No, I really, I fear for, it, it was really suffering 20 years ago. It, it, it picked up again uh, over a decade and there's been a lot of investment. There's BBC Alba, there's a, there's a fully Gallic um, broadcast channel. Wow. Um, and uh, and as you say, this, all, all the signs are north of the border are, bi- are bilingual, yep, Gallic and, Gallic and English. Yeah, it is a beautiful language. Yeah, I did. Oh. <laughs> I did sign up to that on Duolingo. Did you? I'm not that far <laughs> advanced yet. It's very, very. Because <laughs> I wanted hard. to be able to try at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, it's it's staggeringly beautiful. It's, it's sort of if you imagine Sean Connery speaking, um, there's all these shushes and shushes, and the, yeah. it's a gorgeous, soft, marshy language. The reason why I ask about that, I guess, and using language is because throughout this book, you do talk about and reflect on the Anthropocene Mm. and human agency shaping the landscape in sometimes good, but often very bad ways. And that will have long lasting effects and will leave a mark maybe it will still be there above ground, but you do say it will definitely be underground. Mm. And there was just a line that struck me when you wrote, words are world makers and language is one of the great geological forces Mm. of the Anthropocene. And that really struck me Mm. because the words in this book, Underland, to me were very powerful and did really move me. And you said you try to be poetic in this book and you certainly, I think, exceeded that 
but it did make me think that if words are so powerful and as you say that it can shape the landscape it's a geological force what are the implications for that and I guess that goes back to our discussion earlier about the inadequacy of language at the moment and so I wondered when you were going through these very intense kind of physical and mental and emotional experiences visiting with these amazing characters in the book in in um, Britain but also outside of Britain as well where did you get to when you were reflecting on humans and our less positive role, hmm. you know, the way that we have really, yeah, I can't even quite describe what we've done to the earth, but yeah. <laughs> how did you respond to that, thinking about it through that underland lens? Well, um, for your listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with the the idea of the Anthropocene, this is, this is the proposition that we are now in a new earth epoch as stratigraphers as geological historians would would regard it that is to say we're in a period of time where human activity is such a shaping influence on the earth in terms of the the mountains that we're scalping for for coal in terms of the the um, 50 million kilometers of borehole we've drilled into the strata in search of oil in terms of the mass extinction that's underway that we will leave a long-term signature in the strata, the, the the rock record, that will be legible for millions of years to come, and therefore that the epoch should be rechristened the Anthropocene, the the age of of Anthropos, of of man, of of humanity. Loads of objections to this idea, but it is a very powerful one, and I think it's particularly powerful because it says to us. You are a legacy-leaving species, and the things you are doing now will live in deep time. They are how you will be remembered. Uh, and the, the, there's a moral question at the heart of Underland, which is asked by Jonas Salk, the immunologist, Nobel Prize-winning polio specialist. And he says, are we being good ancestors? Mm. At the moment, the answer is no, we, we really aren't. Um, how will we be remembered in the strata? I think I say somewhere by... Um, pig bones by plastic bottles and by lead 207 which is the stable isotope at the end of the uranium 235 decay chain so our signatures as geologists call it in the strata are that they don't look good at the moment so it was easy to despair sometimes as i thought about our deep time future as well as our deep time pasts but in the end i i hope the book is hopeful and it's hopeful on the whole because of the people i meet and met who are all people who refuse to settle for despair. They believe in language and in, in will that, that there is a better future out there, but that it's got to be made by, by many hands um, and by hard work. And they, 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 they're all dreamers and fighters. They, they, they practice what Rebecca Solnit calls hope in the dark. And you know these are, these are dark, dark times, but we need all the hope we can get. It does make me think of that, I can't find the, the section right now in all my notes, but you were talking about future thinking and how it's so difficult for us to place ourselves into the future, Yes, you know, even a hundred years from now and trying to understand the implications of what we've done and what it might actually look like for other people who are inheriting what we've been enacting onto this earth and planet. And I wondered about our ability, as you say, to be good historians and mm -hmm. to think back and you know, make sense of what we've done, but our inability to project far into the future and, and have that at mind when we're making our decisions, when we're thinking about what we're doing. Yeah, I, I think I'd say somewhere we're, 
we've turned into very good historians but very poor futurologists and yes i, I think it's it's partly just a function of of, of the natural short termism of of human cycles and of human political structures political terms that last you know four years ministerial posts that last one year two years maybe before you you move on so many problems to address in the here and now but we're really really bad at even medium term thinking what what's been called um cathedral thinking uh, which i think is a is a helpful phrase um cathedrals that were being built you know really as a eternal spaces but certainly designed to last a thousand two thousand years by the extraordinary medieval makers that raised them um we you know we really don't think on on anything approaching those time scales underland ends in what what i would call a cathedral in a way and, and an example of good ancestry which is in Onkalo, the um, which translates as the cave or the hiding place, which is a Finnish um, deep uh, nuclear storage facility for high-level nuclear waste. And the Finns began planning for this back in the 70s. And they are the only nation to have successfully dug a grave, a sarcophagus for high-level nuclear waste below ground that will last safely, if all goes well, for... 100,000 years that will keep this toxic um, uh, byproduct of, of contemporary civilization from harming the future, from harming our antecedents, as it were, or um, those who come after us. And I went there expecting this to be the end of the world, yeah. you know, kind of got a dammering, the darkest, most awful place. And I came away really moved by, by the kind of cathedral thinking that was happening in, in Finland. Yeah, that's so true. And when I was looking through the structure of your book and how you put it together, it did have this light and dark and then light and dark. And it felt like it gave you a reprieve at times when things were starting to get a little bit <laughs> despairing. There was um, some uplift Good. in the book. Um, just finally, while I've got you, I did want to ask something that people wouldn't really think of as something associated with the Underland. I mean, part of it they would, which is mining, which mm. is something which Australia certainly has a, a strong association with here for not very great reasons often. But you do also draw us into a story in North Yorkshire, which is my second favourite place in Britain. Oh, I was taking them <laughs> off. I visited Ripon and that was my other real love in Britain. I feel like I've only scratched the surface of how beautiful um, a place it can be. But I had absolutely no clue that there were tunnels and mines underneath huge swathes of Yorkshire mm. and also that there were scientists that absolutely needed these structures to be able to study something called dark matter, <laughs> which, um, to be honest really blew my mind in terms of what it really meant for us and and also what's actually going on in terms of our bodies and maybe I won't say that I'll let you get into it but um <laughs> well I'm I just it, was so shocked yeah I mean it uh, well I th th there are voids in our knowledge of the universe and there are voids in our bodies too when you imagine them at a as it were a, an atomic or a quantum level, and the great one of the great voids at the heart of our knowledge of the universe is 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 what most of it is made of. Um, we know that a bunch of it is made of what physicists call baryonic matter. That's the stuff that you know we're sitting on that that our bones are made of. That if we bang, you know, all the stuff around us, the hard stuff that we interact with, that's baryonic. 
Um, but that doesn't account for the mass of the universe and the various extraordinary experiments discovered this m- missing mass in the in the first third of the 20th century and it it still hasn't really been accounted for so the the phrase that's used for this is dark matter uh, which is an amazingly resonant phrase when there's many times when physics um brings into poetry and uh, scientists study dark matter very hard trying to get a, a handle on it because it won't interact with any of our technologies really and the place they do most of their study is way underground so there are in a, in a gold mine in uh, abandoned gold mine in in, in America and in Dakota um, inside Italian mountains and yeah about a vertical kilometer under the green fields of of northeast Yorkshire uh, <laughs> there is a dark matter research laboratory also known as drift and that sits like a little um, scientific cuckoo in the, in, a, in a much bigger nest the nest is a potash mine that's been running for decades now and that has um, webbed this extraordinary um, vast labyrinth of, of drift that is to say mining tunnels both back inland under the moors and and way out under the sea mm. as well so I, I went out along these drifts in a in a vehicle and you know the guy who was driving me this crazy chauffeur I had who's really enjoying one of his last days before retirement by trucking me out <laughs> you sort of say well oh, we just passed the coast oh we just passed the shipping lane and you realize that you are <laughs> way out under the north sea um and that somewhere behind you is a is a scientist peering into a screen a mile underground or a kilometer underground trying to work out what the hell the missing mass of the universe is made of and the thing that really caught me at the end of that section, that story, was your conversation got quite philosophical and mm. theological at the end. Mm. And um, you asked Christopher, does it change the way the world feels knowing that 100 trillion neutrinos pass through your body every second, mm. that countless such particles perforate our brains and hearts? Does it change the way you feel about matter, about what matters? Mm. And, um, yeah, that just really struck me because just like with the fungi and Mm. that what's going on underneath our feet is so amazing to us that we don't quite understand, but we're just beginning to appreciate it also to me felt like a a similar thing. Mm. I mean, I certainly didn't appreciate it till I read this. Mm. Well, I, it it just, I mean, we know so little, I guess that's one of, we, 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 we hold these little tapers up in the darkness and illuminate one tiny stretch of cave wall and we think we think we know the whole underland i mean that's a corona's reminded us of of you know how how out of control we are how how very little we know as well it's been a humbling experience mountains humble us in 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 more pleasant ways i think they remind us of the stretches of deep time and mm. and the things that we we will we'll never know but yes i it, it's very odd to think of our bodies as as these kind of vast gossamer webs to these tiny subatomic particles that that whiz through us all of the time. And again, it, in a sense, I, I wondered what it would be like as a physicist to live in that world conceptually for most of your thinking life, as it were, just as I sometimes ask geologists what it's like to live in deep time for most of their thinking lives. But Christopher's answer was very beautiful. Mm. He said, um, he said, yeah, you know, it amazes and unsettles me, but mostly it, it makes me astonished that I can I can walk on the cliffs near my home and and that I can hold the hand of the person I love and 
and not fall through her, as it were. And I, I just, uh, I just thought that was that was absolutely wonderful. That both ignorance and knowledge, at their very best, restore to us a sense of value, a sense of what what truly matters. And in the end, that that that's probably love. And I think that's what this book really is. It comes back to love and um, and humans' love for nature, but mm. also each other, and what we need to do to make sure that we're still here. Yeah. That's well. That's a wonderful summary and a very generous one. I, I appreciate it. I um I was really touched by it, and that's probably not even a very good adjective to say. No, but it's just right. Yeah, it really was, and um, I just so valued this book, and I can't wait to reread it because I think I'll get a lot out of it again. So, thank you, Robert, for for writing it and all your previous works, which are offering something very unique to us. And uh, I hope you have an absolutely phenomenal trip to Isle of Skye <laughs> and uh, a great visit to the Coolins. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a place that reminds you not to not to fall through the world. That's for sure. So, um, th- thanks for your for your conversation today, and to everyone who's who's listened in. I really, really, really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Amy. Bye. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.